So as part of this time of intense revelation, I walked up the stairs one day and he said, you know, I know where the throne of Satan is. That's how it greeted me. And I was like, really? You know where the throne of Satan is? Where's the throne of Satan? He said, it's in the city of Pergamum. I said, okay. And how do you know that? He said, where it says right here. And he showed me Revelation chapter 2. One of the letters that the wrote that the Lord himself, you know, sent an angel. He didn't write it as a king, he, but he, he spoke it or telepathically conveyed it to an angel who came to earth and gave it to John. To the angel of Messiah's community in Pergamum, write, Thus says the one who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know where you live, where Satan's throne is. The history of our Earth is so different from what we can imagine. Enjoy the journey. The Smithsonian, that if they found out about a large skeleton somewhere, was to go get it. I'm going to assume at least one person is right, because if one person's right, it busts the paradigm. It all goes back to the fallen chair. And the problem with the modern-day church, they have a very truncated view of the supernatural. This backdrop is just pregnant with all kinds of meaning associated with this Mount Hermon event. And this guy defects from the kingdom. That's a big deal. Welcome back to Blurry Creatures. We have Ali Siadatin back on the show today. We're excited. Uh, Ali pretty much takes us all the way through history and shows us where uh, he thinks the throne of Satan is. It's a wild episode, kind of ties in geography, and um, it's a little late today because we just got back from Costa Rica. We had a great time down in Costa Rica. 150 of you guys came down there, and we had a conference with Tim Alvarito and Joel Matamale on the beach talking about cosmic geography to alien abductions it was a wild uh three days can't say thank you enough we even had our first blurry baptism as a uh, a listener was there and uh, was overwhelmed by what he was hearing and it was cool to see god move had an awesome time thank you so much to everyone who has shared this podcast around like luke and i have said you know according to spotify that's how people find out about our show is text messages so Thank you for sharing this with friends, the episodes that mean so much to you. We were blown away this week at how many stories we heard from you guys and how many people traveled around the world to hang out with us and some of our favorite guests to get blurry. If you want to support the show, blurrycreatures.com slash members, become a member of the podcast and help us produce this show. Um, We do it all day, every day, and without your help, it doesn't happen. So... Let's get Ali Siadatin on this one and hope you enjoy it.
Yeah, welcome back to to the podcast. Welcome back to Blurry Creatures, Ali Siadatin from Think Again Productions. We uh we did our first episode with you on episode one ninety nine. So those of you guys listening out there, if you haven't listened to that episode, go back check it out. It was a really good conversation, and we enjoyed it so much, Ali. We, we decided we we wanted you to have you back as soon as possible, and here you are back again. Today we're going to talk about the throne of Satan. The first show was phenomenal. If you haven't listened, Ali will talk about this as as a tree and and being roots and trunk, and there there's a connect connectedness between his story mm-hmm. and then as we as we build this. So I would encourage you to go listen to that first. But that episode actually was one of our fastest and, and most downloaded episodes of 2023. You know your your testimony, and I'm not going to spoil it because we're only a few months away out of it. So it's not like. The Sixth Sense, and we're telling you like, hey, listen, Bruce Willis is dead. You've had 20, 30 years to watch that. You've had a few months here. We're not going to spoil what happens, but it's an amazing testimony. Um, you had an unbelievable encounter in, in Iran. Yeah. And then you you also, or you are a forerunner. You were so far ahead of a lot of folks in this space as you were releasing documentaries in, I believe it was 2006, and correct me if that's not, if that's... Uh, if that's wrong, but that you were you were making docs about UFOs and angels and in the connectedness of understanding uh, this phenomena through a, a biblical paradigm, biblical biblical perspective, and this is, I mean, you know, almost twenty years ago, you know, eighteen years ago, and and this has become a hot topic. Twenty twenty three was wild. I mean, twenty twenty four has already been wild. There's a jellyfish UFO. Something happened in Miami. No one knows what happened. But twenty twenty three, we had House Oversight Committee, you know, on UAPs. We had whistleblowers, and yeah. we had face peelers in Peru. We had all this crazy stuff going on. And yeah, you were you've been knocking on this door, and you were beating this door down long before the rest of the world started sort of tuning in, specifically because you can't, you you can't not in these days. So we're glad to have you back. Love your work. If you haven't seen the documentary, you know, check it out at, at Ollie's website. And but today, as Nate said, we've got a, a special show part. You're Canadian, so it's like part do, right? Slapshot part do. This this is blurry and Ali part do. And uh, it's great to have it's, you back. It's on the, the jean jacket to the Canadian tuxedo. That's right. That's right. Yes. Yes. <laughs> oh, it was so good to be here with you guys. I really enjoyed the show last time, and you're both so easygoing and lovely to talk to. The website is thinkagainproduction.com, and people can watch. And if you double click on the YouTube page, it'll take you to, to double click on the documentary that's on the homepage. It'll take you to to my YouTube page. The idea, I think, is that the Lord is going ahead of us because He knows the plans of the enemy. And he's anointing people to start talking, writing about this, so that the, the you know the awareness can spread. You know, when you look at the story of the um, Psalm twenty-three, the idea that God is a shepherd um, in the Judean desert, uh, it wasn't like the rolling hills of Ireland. Uh, the blades of grass were far and few in between. Uh, they grew around stones and rocks where the water and moisture would gather, and so the shepherd would go ahead of the sheep, locate where the next area. With these blades of grass is and then lead the sheep there so i think in our lives and in our history you know the lord walks ahead of us and he's like okay i gotta prepare you guys for what's coming and so i think the lord you know i took hold of my life when i had that ufo sighting in iran in the deserts of iran and he's like you're going to be talking about this and you, and and what's i'm bringing tonight has its roots in those events and then you know it, it, the, the the revelation came later um, in 1996, 1997, in that year, I was a graduate student at the U of T here in Toronto, and I was studying French 
literature, actually, and language. I was, did my oh, master's in that. You're romantic. But, you're a hopeless ro- romantic. Look at you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to be a storyteller. I love it. And so I walked up, uh, you know, we were going through a series of Bible studies. There's a gentleman who's actually on the documentary, John Peel, and and it was like a time of revelation. You know, this was an organization that I belonged to, and I'd come to faith through them. You know, I'd come to the Lord Jesus through them, and receive the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Now we were, there was these Bible studies that we were weekly involved in, this revelation coming from about the whole idea of the Nephilim and the sons of God and the gods of the nation, all of these things. So as part of this time of intense revelation, I walked up the stairs one day and he said, you know, I know where the throne of Satan is. That's how it greeted me. And I was like, really? You know where the throne of Satan is? Where's the throne of Satan? He said, it's in the city of Pergamon. I said, okay, and how do you know that? He said, where it says is right here. And he showed me Revelation chapter 2, one of the letters that the wrote, that the Lord himself you know, sent an angel. He didn't write it as a king, he, but he, he spoke it or telepathically conveyed it to an angel who came to earth and gave it to John. To the angel of Messiah's community in Pergamon, right? Thus says the one who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know where you live, where Satan's throne is. Hmm. Yet you continue to hold firm to my name, and you did not deny your faith in me even in the days of Antipas. My faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan resides. Now, there's a series I do on the book of Revelation, which is on my Patreon page, and these seven cities were all of them seven cult centers of the gods and of the Nephilim. All seven. Very important cult centers. They were kind of like the Mecca Hmm. of the Greco-Roman world. This is where the spiritual energy and worship of the Greco-Roman world pointed to. But out of all of these cities, the most prestigious and the most important of all the religious altars was the one that was in the city of Pergamum. And that was the altar of Zeus. Mm-hmm. So I went, you know, and did some research about the city and found out that that altar was there. And, you know, um, I said to him, I think this is it. Even the guy who dug it up, Carl mm-hmm. Human, he thinks this altar was the throne of Satan that Jesus was referring to. Because if he was referring to something, you know, architectural, then this was the thing. And he said, well, you know, why would God be creating a a connection in our minds between Zeus, the leader of like the Greco-Roman or the the Greek pantheon, and Satan, you know, the the leader of the fallen angels. Now, I know that the adversary, that's what Satan means, the adversary, can in a way actually refer to the whole bunch of these guys. And the serpent of Genesis 3, the Nachash, is, of course, you know, the one that commonly we you know, in the culture, tend to just call Satan. But but here, in this case, we really are talking about that guy. We're, we know because there was the cult center of these beings in all of these seven towns, and that is one of the running themes in the letters of the Lord. He's saying to them, "Do not compromise with the gods," because you know he declared in in uh, Caesarea Philippi, he went on the top of the hill, and he declared that this world order of these beings was going to. To be done away with, you know, mm. and, and the idol worship and the worship of these beings is going to be done away with. And they 
these cult centers, strong places they were, they were infiltrating the body of the, of, of the Messiah, the body of Christ. And so the running theme is don't compromise with this and take it out or I'm going to take the light away. He's not talking about customary sins like, you know, don't uh, commit adultery or, or don't steal, you know, or, you know, because, you know, no, no church would survive. And so why is he making this connection? And this became the key, actually, this connection that the Lord inspired became the very key that opened the door into the study of the gods. This is this was how I plunged in, and we talked about that last night. So I'm not going to go there. People can listen to that show. This is now taking us in a different direction. Now, when you look at this altar that Carl Human dug up, he was a German engineer, lived at the end of the 19th century, and he you know brought it to Berlin. And kind of keep that in mind because we're going to come back. Interesting. Berlin is interesting. I, I, I real quick, I wanted to orient people because I, I had to do this for myself as you're talking, Ali. Because you know, hear you hear Pergamum and Smyrna and Ephesus. Yeah, and yeah. You hear all these cities, right? But Pergamum is across the Aegean Sea from Greece. It's in Turkey. So if you were to look at a map and you have, kind of have Greece on the left hand side, you have Turkey on the right hand side across the Aegean Sea, and Pergamum is the most north city, and, and it helps me. Because you think about John, and we don't always think about him, but he, he's, he's, uh, he's in Patmos, right? he, he's sort of an exile when he's writing, at the end of his life, he's writing mm-hmm. um, Revelation, correct me if I'm wrong here, but this is in sort of the northern coastal area of Turkey, if you, if you are uh, a more visual person like I am, and I, and I kind of wanted to see that, because you know, I think oftentimes we think about all this stuff sort of happening in and around Israel, right, and, 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 the, and the Holy Land, but... I'm excited to hear why the throne of Satan is, in fact, in Pergamum, mm-hmm. and I know you're going to get there. But just just as as you will, you know, at this point in time, the Greek Empire is is fairly large, uh, and this is where this is taking place. So I wanted to just kind of put that out there so people could have sort of have that visual alongside. Yeah, if they Google Aegean Sea, then they'll see and click on maps, they'll immediately see it. It's right right yep. there, Greece on one mm-hmm. side, modern day Turkey on the other side. But remember, in those days. Greek tribes would have been living on the Turkish side because sure. Turkey is a country that's a thousand year old, thousand years old. Right, mm-hmm. right. Now we're going back 2,000 years. So it would have been kind of the same people that lived on both sides of the Aegean Sea, the Greeks. And then in the south, you have the island of Crete, where you can go to the Museum of Crete and see giant axes wielded by, you know, mm-hmm. giant. And- oh, I did. I've been there. I did that, Ali, on my honeymoon. I went, oh, to, Kino- I went, I went to Knossos and to the to the labyrinth of the Minotaur and the palace. And this is before we got we got blurry. So I just found it all very interesting and loving history. But yeah, Crete, Crete's down below. If you make a big circle, you can start in sort of start in Athens and go all the way down to Crete and up and around to Pergamum. And you can sort of have this complete circle. So awesome. Yeah, there's a lot of wild, crazy stuff that was going on there. And, I, and, I, and I'm excited to hear about you connected to the Nephilim and, and what, what was going on there because, man, like... Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll let you go. I just wanted to, I want, I want to help orient people. Yeah, Minos, well, the the first king of Crete, he was a Nephilim of Zeus. Actually, you know, Zeus became yeah. a bull, and he went and kidnapped the princess of Thrace, just in the north of that area. Brought her down and had a child with her, and that child was King Minos. And the bull is a symbol of Zeus, and you see it on the European Union, you know, money. And another one, of course, is the eagle, and you see it on all the flags of, of where his principality is, all the way from Moscow to DC. And so this is, uh, you know, Zeus is the character here that the Lord is identifying as Satan, uh, as far as I'm concerned, by making this connection between mm. the altar 
and the throne. Now, when the priest would come to this altar, he would then go, he would see, would offer the sacrifices, and then he would go in deeper. There was an, a, another section where he would receive, he would get haunted by the spirit of Zeus. And then he would bring messages to the emperor, you know, the way that the Diocletian sent the message to the oracle of Delphi and asked, you know, what do I do with the Christians? And, he, and Apollo said the Christians are the enemies of the gods. And so he carried out the largest persecution. When you look at all the ancient world, even the Sea of Pergamum, the temple, the royal palace, and the library were interconnected because the libraries contained primarily the laws and decrees of the gods. Mm. You, that's what the, the purpose of the library was. Even the Library of Congress is there to help you know, the lawmakers, especially in the olden days, to go and look for information. This is a tradition that goes all the way back to the ancient world. And most of the senators of Rome uh, were priests of Jupiter. There was the connection between the gods, the center of power, and the teachings that came from them shaped really the ancient world. And that's what the message of the gospel really took down. And as people were delivered from this, and that's why we don't see it, because we're looking at our, our through the world as we see it, we're like, where is all this? We don't see all this. Well, you, you have to go and, and study it. So when the documentary was released and we put this idea in there that this is the throne of Satan, and I was thinking, is this true? Is this really, you know? And that year, uh, a store opened up near where I lived and worked and where they sold magazines. And I went and I was looking at it, and, and suddenly I saw this magazine, Biblical Archaeology, and I was like, oh, that's interesting. That's up my, uh, you know, stuff I like. I picked it up in my alley, and, and suddenly it said on it, Satan's throne, and people at home can't see it, but you guys can, so you can vouch for me. Mm. And, it, and I immediately recognized that this is a piece of the altar of Pergamum, yeah. architecturally. That, so I bought it, and it came, and I read it right away. It talks about Satan's throne and how, you know, this is what the Messiah was pointing to, this altar of Zeus, when he talked about this particular throne. And she, Adela Collins, from... Yale Theological Seminary, she went ahead to make the connection between the gods and in 2006 here. And, and she said, you know, that, that you know, the, the Septuagint, as well as the Greek translation, here's an example, the Pharaoh of Egypt, he looks into the library and he says, the laws of all the gods are in the library of Egypt, but not the laws of the gods of Israel. And so he gets these guys to translate the Old Testament and that's why we have it in Greek to put into his library. Interesting. And that's the, how we got the Septuagint, you see? He wanted you know, the laws of this god, you know, the Code of Hammurabi. You know, you see the big statue, the sun god champs, hands down the Code of Hammurabi. So, so this, was, this was the way it was in the ancient world. And this is what, you look at the library of Ashurbanipal in the city of Nineveh that was unearthed by Lair. That will... You know, the library was very classified, very organized in different topics, but the majority of the library was dedicated to the names, epitaphs, and teachings of the Eloni, of the Elohim, of the gods. Wow. So here, here she says, you know, in the article that there is Septuagint, talks about the sons of God having been put in charge of the various nations, yeah. you know, Deuteronomy 32, verse 79, and she says the Dead Sea Scrolls. The most, or the oldest Hebrew copy, uh, ancient Hebrew copies of the Old Testament say the same thing. So she made the connection as well already in this 2006 article. But so for me, it was good that she made that connection about the gods because nobody else was talking about this. Uh, Deuteronomy 32 years, but also no one was talking about the throne. 
And this was comforting to me because I took it as a sign from the Lord that in the year the documentary was released, this article came out and that I found it, you know, like that, talking right. about Satan's throne. And if you do kind of what was on there, you know, what was depicted on this thing was the war of the giants, the Nephilim, and the gods. And so the way the, the altar depicts it in its, in its imagery all carved all around it is that the gods are were the ones that rescued humanity from the rebellion of the giants and from the evil of the giants, and they restored order. The, Zeus is the one that takes the merit of you know, bringing order to the world after the flood and after the destruction of the giants. And therefore, the emperors are here to make sure that the law and order of this, you know, Jupiterian, Zeusian world is established throughout the earth through the imperial system. Essentially, he attributes to himself the deeds of God and that he is the one that brings, you know, law and order. Uh, to the world. And then, so that's what was called the Roman peace. You know, when, even when the Rome took over Athens, they said, oh, we have brought the Roman peace here. And it was a famous term, uh, la pacha romana, la pax romana. And, but it, that's what it was. It was like the, the order of Zeus, you know, must be established. He's going to bring, he's the one that's brought peace. And there was the gods and the Nephilim, they're mentioned in all of these cities as the, the founder of this city was a Nephilim. So, this was the beginning of this journey, and you go, okay, so if God is making this connection between Zeus and Satan, where is this going to take us? Now, if we go to Matthew chapter 24, the Lord talks about the end of the age. You know, they say to him, tell us about the end of the age. And this is the very famous passage where he says it'll be like the days of Noah. Mm. And the reason he says that is because um, you look at Ecclesiastes chapter 1, Verse 9, what was will be again. What has done will be done again. Right? Ecclesiastes chapter 1 verse 9. This is the biblical idea of cycles, that history moves forward in a spiral. Mark Twain said history doesn't repeat itself, but it sure does rhyme. And I think he got it. <laughs> it moves <laughs> <laughs> it moves forward in cycles, in spiral form. It's a line, but actually the line is moving forward through like the seasons. You know, every year we have the spring and the fall, and every year yeah. we have the appointed days, and every day, every year we remember the Passover where the Lord was crucified. So, but it's but the works of God are are still progressing through this cyclical movement through time, and so. The, the rabbis believed that the reason all of the things, the history that existed in the Old Testament was there because it was pregnant with a template that spoke of the ages of the future and that these events would occur again in the future, but on a larger hmm. scale. And that's why God had decided that these were the moments of history that he would put in his sacred scripture because they would inform us of this great battle and this the, the the birth pangs of the messianic kingdom and of the movement towards redemption and the establishing of, of the eternal state. How are we going to get there? Where it's going to happen through history? There's a story here. And so they say to him, what are all of the signs of your coming? He says, well, it'll be like the days of Noah. And as he's giving us this big speech, suddenly in the middle of it, he says, so when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through 
Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place. Then those in Judea must flee to the mountains. There one on the roof must not go down to take what is in his house. So and people can read it themselves. It's uh, Matthew 24, verse 15. So what's what, what's happening here is he's again referring to a historical event spoken of by who? Daniel the prophet. So this was very known to his audience because Daniel the prophet, you know, in, in what's now chapter 11 of his book, he had prophesied about this guy that would come to Israel you know, his forces will rise up and profane the fortified temple. They will stop the daily offering and set up the abomination of desolation. And so the Lord takes this teaching from Daniel, and he now is going to open it up further for us. Now, Antiochus Epiphanes had come around the year 167, and he had, by ruse, slowly, slowly gotten into their minds and the heads of the, uh, you know, he had changed the high priest. He put a new high priest in, Jason, and he got into the heads of the priesthood and into the culture, and he started to convince them to start sacrificing to the gods. And they started to do that on a mass level in Israel, the priesthood as well. Then he started to say to them, you know what, why don't we start to change the laws this outlaw the reading of the five books of Moses. And they did that. Then he says, okay, let's outlaw the keeping of the Sabbath. They did that. And so, but what is this desolation of abomination that, you know, that Daniel's talking about? He then says, you know what? Let's go one step further. He walks into the temple, sacrifices a pig on the sacrificial altar. That's when it becomes desolate. Now it's unusable for the atonement sacrifices that you know take away sin, fulfill God's law. And then he goes into the Holy of Holies, at the very center of the temple, and he erects an idol to Zeus because he is a devout follower of the god Zeus. That's who he is himself, Antiochus Epiphanes, whose name means God manifest, actually. In, in, in he's a servant of Zeus, you know, he, he's one of the generals of the Greek world. So the Persian world, you know, that's a boundary that those seven are, uh, churches are the boundary between the Persian world and the Greek world. And now Alexander the Great arose and he took over the Persian Empire. And we have kind of the, the, this new power that's come into play. And one of his generals after his death inherits this portion of the kingdom, um, the Seleucid. And he is the one, as a servant of Zeus, who comes and erects this altar of Zeus in the temple. And and so this people thought this is done. This was this was fulfilled. You know, mm. Daniel prophesied it, and Antiochus Epiphanes fulfilled it. But the Lord says, No, this is a template. Those events that happened in the days of Antiochus are one of those historical templates that speak of the future. So he suddenly brings a new teaching that was absent. He pulls it out the way that he said these are the days of Noah. He's now in that very speech taking in yet another days, the days of Antiochus Epiphanes. Now, what happens? What, what could have be happening in the future? First of all, let's talk about that for a second. In the future, Paul builds on this teaching of the Lord in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 
Paul starts to say that there will come a, a son of perdition. And so for those who are familiar with the teaching that actually the seed of the serpent, you know, in Genesis chapter 3, God puts enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Once you understand that Nephilim were real and that there was a bloodline of the serpent, mm. and you realize there really is a seed of the serpent, then this son of perdition that, you know, what Paul is talking about in Second Thessalonians is in fact the serpent seed, you know, in its in its full glory. That's why the Lord, you know, the in the story of David and Goliath, David, who's a type of the Messiah, he slew a Nephilim because that was again another picture of a past event that spoke of this climactic, you know. And so what Paul says is what's going to happen is that this guy is going to come and he's going to go in, in the temple of God. This, this man is going to go in the temple of God and declare himself above all that is called God um, and above all that it's called and, and you ask to be worshipped. And so, so when the Lord says, when you see the abomination of desolation in, in the Holy of Holies and talking about the future, then when Paul says the same thing, but he, Paul adds this clarification proof that your precision to it, that this is a man and that this man is a character that, you know, we all talk about as the, as the Antichrist. So there's all this idea that emerges that, you know, there's going to be uh, a, a third temple, you know, being built. Mm -hmm. Because when is it that the Jewish people have ever come to this land without building a temple? They came there the first time, what do they do? They build a temple. Right. Second time, the temple. And what does the Ecclesiastes tell us? What was, will be. Right. right, it's the cycles of history, and so suddenly the idea that there is this man, and you know, I was letting my phone charge outside in the other room. I'm out of plugs in here, uh, so that I could quickly, you know, bring up the passages that I have lined up. In so in Second Thessalonians, he comes and says, you know, this is this is the way it's going to go down. There's going to be uh, this character, and and there is the man of lawlessness. And, and this letter, the second Thessalonian letter, people were saying, you know what, the Lord has come and people have missed it. And this was a lie. And so Paul is actually, you know, saying, no, these events are going to happen before, you know, the, the, the Lord comes. Let no one deceive you. That's what he's talking about, this deception that was going around. For the day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness was revealed the one destined to be destroyed. He opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he sits in the temple of God proclaiming himself that he is God. And, and it goes on and talks about lies and delusions and very much ties into, into the war of angels, actually, because this man, he's going to make fire come from heaven. I think he's going to make a UFO connection. So this story, the Lord says, is going to have kind of a future template. Now, what happened? In, in, in the days of Antiochus Epiphanes, the servant of Zeus, who put an idol of Zeus. So that tells us that this man at the end is going to also be connected to Zeus and to that principality. He's going to be the son of Zeus. In fact, that is what Zeus, who Zeus is, is Satan. And so that's what I think the, the Lord is talking about. So the, 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 the Lord identifies him. And who was Zeus? Where did he come from? Well, there was the cult of Marduk in the city of Babylon. 
And when the Persians took over Babylon, the, the, the worshippers of Marduk left Marduk, uh, left Babylon and came to Pergamum and established the cult of Zeus. And before Marduk, the character in the Sumerian pantheon that matches him going further back into before Babylon is Enlil. If you look at the tablets of kingship, they always talked about the sen, uh, the scepter of Enlil. I mean, that's what that's the god that gave them the power and authority to rule Mesopotamia. And there was this cult that he had a temple, and often the kings of Mesopotamia would go into that temple to the priests and get their get their blessing. In the Hebrew tradition, he will be called Baal, the storm god always. And even Bilzebub is the prince of the power of the air. That's why Zeus's sign was the lightning. And if you look at the SS, their S wasn't really yeah. two S's. It was two lightning, right? right? So it kind of aligns, you know, the whole idea of this character. It's a, he's an important character. And the temple, we don't think about the temple, but when you look at the place the temple had in the story of the Lord's resurrection, he goes to a heavenly temple where God is, and he presents the full body of the resurrection he sits on a throne at the right-hand side of God, and the Father sends the Holy Spirit as a result of this you know, complete, complete work. And the book of Hebrews tells us that essentially the temple of clay that was on the earth was a shadow of a heavenly mm. temple. And even the ornaments and the things that were inside of the temple, it says in the book of Hebrews, quoting Exodus chapter 25, that Moses was shown the pattern of heavenly things that are in the temple of God, and he was told to build earthly replicas. So this was a very important place for this man to walk into and desecrate it and put a idol of Zeus, who is, I think the Lord is saying, in fact, the, the God that wears the face of, of Satan himself, hmm. to put that holy of holies where only the high priest could enter only once a year on the holiest day of the year to atone there, you know, for to confess his sins and the sins of the people. And so the Lord, as the high priest, ascended into the Holy of Holies, you know, at the center of time and space. And if you look at it, there are four temples in the Bible. There is the temple of clay that was in Jerusalem. Then there is the human. We become temples as we mm. receive the Holy Spirit is where the sacred dwells. Then we have the temple that the Lord will reign from when he returns to the earth, if you believe in that millennial kingdom, not everyone does, but I do. And later, we are told that we enter into the heavenly Jerusalem. It's described as this cube that mm -hmm. descends, and we enter it. And what is, happens then once we enter it as the royal priesthood? This is our destiny. This is the earth is the incubation chamber of the immortal children of God. The universe itself, or the heavens and the earth, the new heavens and the new earth, become the temple. And we are in the Holy of Holies in the middle wow. of it, hmm. as the entire creation is the temple of God, and we in the middle of it in the Holy of Holies, serving as the priests of God. So the fact that there was an earthly replica of this majestic and glorious, and that this guy went in, so what happens? The Lord stirs up the righteous souls of a priestly family, Judah, the known as the hammer, Maccabee, and he and his sons, they say, you know what? You, you know, Antiochus, he's got all the big armies, he's got the latest tech, and he's got the manpower, but we don't really care. We have the Lord God with us, like the story of David and Goliath. Yeah. We refuse this. And he goes, 
and they knew God. But Antiochus fooled them. You know, he came not to a people that didn't know God. He came to a people that had forsaken their God. But this family got up and they, they started to do this type of a militia warfare where the Judean hills are steep and the phalanx of the Greeks, they have spears, they have shields, they walk in lines. They would come down the two sides and stab them on the side. And these guys couldn't steer with their big shields and spears to fight well and they started to fall. And eventually it was so heavy, the casualties were so heavy that Antiochus leaves and, and he goes away and lets them be. And now what do they do? They rededicate the temple to God. And mm. this rededication feast is mentioned once in the entire Bible in the New Testament, in John chapter 10, where the Lord is seen attending. The, the, the term in Hebrew is Hanukkah. That's what it means to rededicate. And they would, you know, put these giant, giant candlesticks, and they, um, they, it's a different candlestick than the one that, that the Lord commanded. Has you know eight. So the, the Lord was attending Hanukkah. It says that in in John chapter ten verse twenty two. And they come and ask him, "Are you the Messiah?" Why do they ask him that at Hanukkah? Because after this event with Judah Maccabee, the Jewish people thinking about the system of patterns in scripture, they think, you know what? Clearly, this we had a victory against an empire on this day. So this is the time of the coming of the Messiah. The Messiah will appear on one of the feasts of dedication. And that's why they come to him and they say, are you the Messiah? And he says, you know, I'm telling you I am, right? This becomes the release of the first light. So when you look at the books of Moses, five books of Moses, the word that is mentioned more than any other word is Mishkan, which means tent of meeting and temple, because mm. God above all wants to meet us and have intimacy with mm. And that's why the curtain is removed and his spirit enters us. He wants to have soul-to-soul -soul connection with us, kind of like a lover. I mean, that's what the Song of Songs is about. And that's what the covenant Sinai is about. It's a wedding ceremony. Mm. And this the Jewish wedding works. You get engaged, then the groom goes away, he builds a house, he comes and gets you. So it's like the Lord said, I'll go prepare a place. And then he goes to the wedding feast. Right. And he turns the water into wine. And so and we celebrate because wine is the was seen as, you know, the the what you have when you're celebrating. Makes you feel good and all that. So this was uh where that's we're the, that's the rumor. That's the rumor, right? <laughs> yes. <that's the> <laughs> So this uh, it, 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 it was in the Jewish writings. So this is kind of the story of the Bible is a love mm. story, right? And that's why the tent of meeting. But in the passages where the tent of meeting is mentioned, the word that appears the most in those passages is the menorah, the candlestick, which represented the light of God. And I'll tell you something interesting. One of the times I was in Israel and I, and I take people there, I'm thinking of taking a small group you know, next fall if, if things calm down. If you want to come with me, let me know. It's fascinating to walk in the setting of scripture. I mean, things come to life. It's just mind-blowing. Here's one example. The Gethsemane, where the Lord went and he cried just before he was going to be arrested. And he was, you know, had sweating bullets and all of that. First of all, Gethsemane, in the Bible, it doesn't say the Garden of Gethsemane. The word garden, that you look at in your New Testament, you'll never find the word garden. It says Gethsemane, which means olive press. And there is there this hill right across the Temple Mount where there are olive 
trees. And some of those olive trees are four or 500 years old. Some are even older. Hmm. Some may have been there even from the days of the Lord. Olive trees live a long time. And underneath it, there is an olive press to this day in, embedded in the cave. It's a cave. You go into the cave under the hill and there's an olive press. And the Franciscans, you know, man that and they have services there because they think this was actually the cave. This is where he was hmm. hiding with his disciples. But what's interesting is this, that the olive trees that are up there, they're not just any olive trees. They were the olive trees whose olive was cultivated purely and simply and only for the purpose of being crushed to be the olive that lights the candlestick of the Wow. That, that Moses had seen a heavenly replica. So the Lord goes to the hill where the olive is that, that lights up the candle of the temple. Wow. And crushed as he's praying, the way that that olive gets crushed on the stone of the olive press that crushes it to extract the olive. And then he goes to the other hill across the street where the temple mount is, where the temple is, and he gets crucified and becomes the light of the world, like the candlestick. Mm -hmm and shines and and also all of the all oil is the sign of the anointing of the holy spirit and with it him comes the anointing i mean that's what messiah means anointed one and 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 his disciples us we're the anointed one of god so the the spirit of god so there's a and you don't know that until you're there and you go wait a second this was the other where the olives of that temple oh i see why he was here why he was crushed here. He was like, you know, hmm. and so th there was a huge importance about this place, you know. You know, if you believe the Lord's going to come back and rule the earth, He's going to rule it from there. So this this thing, when they when they rededicated the temple, apparently the priest, somebody had had the mind to hide some of this special oil because they had to light up the candlestick. But it takes eight days to to make the oil. But somehow every night there was enough oil, and it lasted for the eight days that they needed to make the new batch of oil. And that's why, you know, it had its own special candlestick. It was about light. Mm. The light of God was reignited. The machinery of God moving forward towards redemption, salvation, the establishing of the kingdom, the freeing of humanity, the, the giving back of the inheritance of Adam and the cosmic tale. All of that started again because of the obedience of Judah Maccabee and the rededication of the temple. And the shining of the light of God and the teachings of God in the Holy Land. And that was the first light. So the enemy attacked, but God responded by creating, you know, the, the rededication of his and, and reigniting his light and giving us a template of a future stratagem mm. that for three and a half years, the temple was left desolate at that time before this type of the Messiah came. Even they thought, oh, the Messiah is going to come at this time. You know, that's. That's why they asked him, are you the Messiah at this time? 
And so, so when Paul talks about this guy, we'll see, we'll see, you know, and we'll see where this story goes. And I'll talk about it at the end of our tale. Then you move forward. They build the temple. They rededicate the temple. And now we have the time of the Lord. And the Lord comes and, they, and he's on the back of a donkey and he's coming down from the hill. And like, you know, it was prophesied and then they declare him the, the king, Hosanna the king. And apparently it's a very special day. You know, some people do this calculation. They said this is a day that was, you know, Daniel had this, had this incredible prophecy in chapter 9 about the 70 weeks. And somehow when you do the calculation, it falls that on this day, it said that he would be called a king. And this was the only time we know of in the entire Bible where the people get around and call him king. And then he, he's on the back of the donkey and he's coming down and then he stops right on this, on this, on this little hill, you know, the Mount of Olives. Jerusalem has three hills, right? And he stops on the Mount of Olives. That's, you know, where the olives are, but this is another section of it. He stops on the Mount of Olives and he weeps and he weeps, you know, kind of read like Luke 19 to Luke 21. He weeps over the temple and he says, it's going to be destroyed. That, that Jerusalem is going to be surrounded by her enemies. That not one stone will stand. Or, uh-huh. He gives this massive prophecy about the destruction of the temple. And that's interesting. You know, when the Romans come, they eventually, they, they want to take the gold out of the temple. But the temple catches fire. Of flaming arrows thrown in, we don't know, or a torch was thrown in. And they say, look, sorry, the gold melted. And it's connected to the stones. And then he says, then dismantle it stone by stone and melt the gold for him. And the prophecy of the Lord happens literally. And you go to Jerusalem today, you can see what's left of the temple. They threw the stones down and it just hit the ground and broke the sidewalk. And it's right there. The stone is still there. And so is the sidewalk. Warner of the temple that just collapsed is still there. And it says on Hebrew, the place of the shofar, because that's where one of the Levites would go to blow the shofar to announce that the Sabbath had started or a particular feast they had started. They didn't have clocks. So these guys are a new moon had come. And so it's, you know, it's interesting to walk in there, even where the money changers were, is still there. And it's, you know, all of that, it's quite fascinating. And so as he's kind of telling them, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that her desolation is near, then those in Judea must flee to the mountains and those inside the city must get out and those in the countryside must not enter her. So it gives this prophecy of the armies coming and suddenly these armies eventually show up around 70 AD, you know, between 68 and 70. And so what's interesting, first of all, is this. The empire that sends the army, who is their god? Jupiter, which is the name that the Romans give to Zeus. Why? That's right. Because when the scepter of power moved from empire to empire, these people believed that the pantheon had moved from one place to another, and that the leader of the pantheon of the gods had anointed a new civilization as his extension, and the emperor of that civilization was now receiving the scepter of rule from the chief of the gods, and they would rename it in the likeness of their culture in order to make, to identify with them, he was now theirs, and they were now his. He was no longer the Zeus who gave the power to Athens. He was now the Jupiter who gave the power to Rome. But they understood it was the same guy. And that's why they, they sacrificed in a 
sacrifices were offered at the altar of Zeus. So the same spiritual force that was behind Antiochus Epiphany that came in and corrupted the people of God and desecrated the temple and stopped the machinery of the entire work of God and put an idol to Zeus in the Holy of Holies, the same spiritual force again comes from the same principality. Mm. And this time, it destroys the temple, not on any day, but on the ninth of the month of Av in the biblical calendar. Why is that important? Because that is exactly the day that the Babylonians destroyed the temple several centuries ago or that. Two empires, centuries apart, destroyed the temple on the same day, the ninth of the month of Av. Just shows you kind of like, you know, there was a spiritual force behind this. Now, what is the ninth of Av? The ninth of Av is the day that the uh, 12 spies that were sent into the land and they saw the Nephilim and they came back and 10 of them said, we can't take these guys. The evil report they gave and people accepted that report. That was the ninth of Av. And from then, tragedies have occurred on that day. That's why the Orthodox Jews fast and pray on the ninth of Av to avoid tragedy. They see a pattern. There's several other tragic events that have happened on that day. So it was interesting. And so what is God's response to this? God's response is he sends the Holy Spirit, the second light. The first light is, you know, the the light of the temples of Judaism, whatever you want to call it, it turns back on. And the Lord honors that day by attending Hanukkah, the rededication of the temple. And, and says, this is a teaching up for the end times. But the second time, that spiritual force that is behind Antiochus Epiphanes, behind the son of perdition, I imagine, therefore, behind the emperor of Rome, the one whose throne was in Pergamum, the second time he reaches towards that temple to destroy it and begins to kill who? All the people who become anointed with the Holy Spirit and have, up and have become the new temples. Mm. He starts to you know, try to extinguish them. And so the second time he reaches to do that, the Lord responds by sending a greater life, which is his own spirit, his own presence enters. Where? Well, Paul receives a dream from a Macedonian man who says to him, come in our direction. And that's why you know Christianity goes west into the realm of Jupiter and doesn't go east. And it's a good thing because if this is the most powerful of all the principalities and he was going to continue to build, you know, it kind of, you know, there is uh, the Roman Empire is under him. And then, of course, where does the sect, when the Roman Empire dies in the West and is reborn, where is the new center? Germany is through the Germanic tribes, you know, that, that the Roman Empire, Charlemagne comes from Germany and he says, I'm going to create the Holy Roman Empire. And that's where we're going to find this throne ultimately in Berlin, in the most powerful nation of uh, of the merging. So this this character, the second time he reaches his hand to stop, to destroy the things of God and to say, no, this replica of this holy place, no, you know, these people who are anointed, no, what does God do? He sends the Holy Spirit into his realm. And it's a good thing because 
if his realm was destined always to be the most powerful, the most industrial, the most technological, the most advanced, the most politically uh, you know, powerful, the most militarily powerful of the realms, it's good that the Holy Spirit and the people that have it live there because it keeps it down and influences. You know, imagine if the most powerful part of the world didn't have the presence. You know, why did Christendom have to be, have to be in that principality's realm? You know, why did God, you know, this dream that Paul received, even when Jesus in Acts chapter 26, he says to Paul, I send you now to the Gentiles to bring them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God. That's what Jesus says in Acts 26 to Paul, from the power of Satan to God. Mm. And so he's, and then the mass, the dream that Paul receives from the Macedonian says, come to us gives him the Gentiles. Well, the Gentiles would mean anybody. I mean, you know, Paul could have gone to Mesopotamia through the Silk Road. He can come to Persia, to India, to China. You know, there's lots of civilizations there. But no, you're going to go this way, the dream tells him. And I think it's because of this. And to to hold down this very powerful place. And that's why the shift we're seeing in the West right now with the rise of paganism and the return to the way things were before the Word of God came to you know, we see Europe has undergone massive changes in its spirituality since World War II, and now we see uh, North America, you know, is undergoing massive changes in culturally. We don't really live in a Judeo-Christian world anymore. We don't even live in a post-Judeo-Christian world. We live in an anti-Judeo-Christian world, you know, where right. even what you see on the internet can be censored if it's too much in agreement with the Bible. So this is kind of changing the fabric of the world as a whole you know the the signs and symbols of these beings you know appear over us and and so there's a change happening in the united states and i think it's important that mm. the christians rise up at this time and say no we want to hold on to the heritage that came from jerusalem into the realm of this principality you know and so and we want to hang on to this truth so that's the second time now we move forward to the time where Carl Human at the end of the 19th century, boom, discovers this altar. How do you interpret the temptation of Christ given all this knowledge? Yes. You know, the part where Satan says to him, dominion has been given to me over yeah. all the kings of the mm. earth. And I'll you worship me. Well, clearly he is the leader. It's a contentious kingdom, that of the enemy. But it seems to me they fight among each other. But he is the leader he says in the book of Revelation, one third followed him. The, the ancient dragon, he took one third of the stars down with his tail. So these principalities and powers and these gods, this trident, the eagle, the bull, the crescent of the moon, their symbols are all over the place. They love their symbols. It, it marks their boundaries. I mean, this is the book I'm going to be writing about is going to reveal some of these boundaries and some. it's going to bring so many things to light that has to do with these, with these characters. Basically, this whole temptation that you're talking about, what he's saying is, look, all of these beings, they're under me, they're, they're, they're my guys, and I'm their leader, and I've put my scepter right now in Rome. You know, his scepter goes mm. from his, yeah, from Babylon to Greece to Rome, and, and he's like, I'll give you all of this. I know that God has given you Israel, but if you worship me, I'll throw in the empire, and, and we can have it all. We can have Israel, kind of like Antiochus Epiphanes, bring Israel to my side, sacrifice to the gods. And 
we know we will have, you can have the empire. And of course, as, as the centuries go forward, we'll build up the heavenly chariots and we'll, like Nimrod, we'll carry our rebellion into the heavens, you know? Yeah. And the Lord says to him, no, it is written, worship God alone, Satan behind me. And so the Lord says, no, what I'm going to do is what he declares at Caesarea Philippi when, you know, I, I talked about this when I went to Israel when I, uh, Israel in 2013, and they took me to Caesarea Philippi and explained that this was actually the hill the Lord came to with his disciples. And it was a pagan center of worship for the Romans. And there's all these pagan temples. And he goes on top of the hill and he says, you know, who do you say I am? And they say, you're the Christ, the son of God. And he says, Peter says that. And he says, no man gave you this idea. And he says, upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. There was a place of sacrifice to the gods called the gates of Hades where you threw your sacrifice, you bound it, and you threw it in there. And if it went down the waters, it meant your prayers were accepted. If it didn't, it meant it wasn't. He went on top of this hill with all these temples and he said, basically, there's going to be a new new spiritual order. The, the power of these powers and principles is going to be diminished and the beginning of the new creation, my people, is going to rise and the gates, these things of the Hades won't overcome it. And this was his answer to to the temptation, yeah. I think. Like, you know what? I'm not going to take the bargain you're offering me. Thank you very much. I'm going to worship God. And I'm going to, the Passover lamb is going to now bring people out of Egypt, out of bondage to the gods and to the Pharaoh. There's going to be a final Pharaoh, a final kingdom. And that's what I think we're seeing right now. Everything is going back to the first century. The Jewish people are back in the land. Jerusalem is in their hand. There's the Messianic movement that started in 1967. Again, Jews are declaring Jesus as the Messiah and preaching it. The empires are forming again. The Persians are extending their power all through the Middle East, like they were the last empire of that region as far as God gave power to that center of, uh, of rule. And then as the Romans destroyed Jerusalem and scattered the Jewish people, God said that he'll bless those blesses people and curse those who curse them. So I think that God divided Rome and scattered them, mm -hmm. scattered Rome into all of these little heads, you know, the that became the European nations and eventually their extension into the new world. But now that Jerusalem is back and Israel is back, they may start uniting again mm -hmm. and form, you know, empire and eventually having a leader. So, so everything is going back 360 degrees, it seems, to the day... It's the cycle, right? You talked about, uh, yeah. Yes. It, it's it's interesting. I I love how you put this because I, we've talked about this a lot on the show. But like the idea of the passing of the scepter, right? You have Enlil with the Mesopotamians, and you have Baal, and you then you have Marduk, and then you have Zeus, and, and then and you have Jupiter, right? And you you have this succession, but they are all, all are what? They're all gods of the air. You even have Ra. If you want to throw Ra in there with from Egypt, you have gods of the air. Then are just it's just, just rebranding, remarketing, renaming of this entity that then takes control of yeah. the, the the civilization of of power or of note in in that time. But they all are storm gods, air gods, etc. And then I know they we talked about Satan being the prince of Rome at this point, right? Because he is the prince of the power of the air, and and then in temptation of Christ is if he's giving. The, the kings of the world, well, that's the, the empire of Rome, as you said. That, that's, they owned the known world. They, they dominated yeah. and subjugated the known world. And, and, and I, I think that's fascinating. There's a couple of things I wanted to point out that I loved. I love the hammer. Is there a better nickname than, than, than being called the hammer if you're Judah? And then what I thought was interesting was, was you're talking about the, 
the the tense of meeting. And when you think about that word in Hebrew, what thing that came to my mind, and I didn't want to. You were on a roll, so I didn't want to to just make a comment. But when you talk about the angel of the Lord, right, and you have this this supreme carnate Christ, and what does he do? He goes and he sits and he eats with Abraham, and he goes he. he he goes and meets. It's 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 such the the heart of God, right? That even as this angel of the Lord, this this you know, Jesus before Jesus is 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 Jesus walking the earth is still in the form of God is still wanting to go meet and sit and eat and he he's the same yesterday today and forever and I, and I just I love that picture because as you talk about everything coming back to sort of the way it was, it's always good to remind that God is the same. He, does, he wants the same things. He wants to sit with us. He wants to be with us. He, he wants to eat with us, right? In, in in the same way he did with Abraham, in the same way he ate with the, the, Jesus ate with his disciples and broke bread. Like that's the father heart is the is to have the relationship with with his his kids. These, these are profound things that that were sort of connecting strings. And I really like how you've done it. Uh, and we've talked we've talked to ad nauseum actually actually about you, you know Peneus and the things you talked about the gates of hell yeah. and and the importance yeah. of of Mount Hermon there and, and essentially yeah. what happened in Genesis six and Christ being so intentional to be there and to yeah. to say the things he said and to take his disciples and like you said if you haven't been to Israel you don't know how far away that is from where they really were it was like a you know, we're going on a, we're going we're going on a field trip so get your put strap up your sandals we're we're taking a we're taking a hike this isn't you know this isn't good. we're not going down to Nazareth guys <laughs> we're going we're going up the road but it's the I, I think one of the things that's always impressed upon me and I know it is you as well is, is the cosmic significance right not only that place but then the cosmic significance of as you said that beautiful story about uh, Gethsemane and Christ is so intentional. Like these, these are the, these are the layers, right? Like yes. the oil and the press. It's like, this is not only there, there's cosmic significance to this. Like there is a, you know, Christ loved to speak in parables and there, and there is this unwrapping of this really intentional it, parable, if you will, of location, meaning, um, cosmic significance in, in the, in the kingdom. Mm-hmm. And and I and I think that those things are so important as we sort of unwrap the, you know, understanding the scriptures and getting into our Bible and, and having that, it's it's richness. I don't know how else to put it, but I I love that. And I don't want to throw you off, but I I uh, I had to talk about the hammer because dude, what a, what a great mm-hmm. nickname! If you're going to be anybody yeah. in the Bible and you get a nickname, it needs to be the hammer. So. Yes, yeah, right. Going back to my kind of literature days, I think that by creating all these layers where the same ideas are reinforced, even through the physical location and geography of the land, it creates a bulletproof approach to what the word is trying to say mm-hmm. that the enemy can so easily, you know, it's not it, it, what the Lord is saying doesn't hinge on a sentence or a paragraph or an invitation. He, he reinforces it from so many angles, even the physical mm-hmm. of the land that no one can miss. And destroy so easily his words. You know, it's, always, it's literally built into his creation. It's, it's like built God built this into the creation before this was to happen, for it to be destined to happen there. Yes. That's That in and of itself is a mind grenade. Yes. Like I cre- once heard this creature yeah. say, you know, when you look at the, 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 the water comes from the Sea of Galilee in the Jordan River, comes to the, to, to the Dead Sea. It's the lowest point of the earth and nothing survives and then the sun evaporates the water and it becomes a cloud and it rains over the whole land. And he said the Lord started his ministry in Galilee, came down to Jerusalem where the Dead Sea is and died, became dead like the sea, then ascended and showered the, the land. Hey. And so 
you know, it's like even the the topography of the land is wow. The story. I love that. That's incredible. I think so many times, you know, the the reasons why a lot of people like our show is because we get into those sort of those weird connections between things. And another thing you were talking about, I love the olive story, and I also think that we recently talked about sort of this other way of, of reading Revelation as if it's repeating themes. And ultimately, the the final, the end of the age, when everything is, you know, comes to fruition, will be a similar theme maybe to the end of some of these other empires and some of these prophecies. Instead of reading it as like, it's only going to happen at the end, reading it as if it's already happened multiple times, the same thing has happened several times. It's just going to be a little bit more unique in the end, like the final culmination of this story that keeps repeating. And we talk about that a lot about how the Genesis 6 narrative repeats. You have this modern day version of hybrids happening. People are being abducted and it's finally coming out and there's evidence for that. And we've talked about that at length and how it's similar to the, the ancient Genesis 6 narrative. And it's this repeat, repeating theme. And I like... I like the conversation about how Revelation is a repeating theme. Ultimately, at some point, it's going to be the end. But until then, you can start to see how the theme repeats and how prophecy repeats. And I, and I just like that. Yeah. Prophecy is pattern. That's how the Hebrew mind saw it, that it's prophetic uh, poetry of the Bible is a pattern. It wasn't linear. The Greek mind saw Everything had one fulfillment. Yes. You know, I was once on a show with somebody else and he kind of corrected me. He said, no, you see, the, the Jews thought this was about Antiochus Epiphanes, but Jesus corrected them, made them realize, no, this is about, you know, the antic. And I was thinking, no, 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 you don't get it. That the, the Bible's narrative structure is designed this system of pattern where God, like the story of the Passover, is a small version of the bigger deliverance of humanity through the Passover lamp and the defeat of the gods and their represent of the Pharaoh. So this whole templates of the Old Testament, they are pregnant with future history. That's how the Bible is designed. And that's why the Lord is pulling on these levers and he's saying, well, my the end of the age will be like the days of Noah, will be like the days of Antiochus. Right. The book of Revelation says it'll be like the days of the Passover. So it's giving us clues. Now, when we study those stories, it gives us clues to, so that we can prepare not only recognize but prepare because we know a lot about the details of how pattern is going to unfold right. so it, those clues this is actually how the bible is written now the three synoptic gospels matthew luke and mark they see eye to eye and this is a theologians came up with this idea in the 1970s and it kind of blinds you because it has the eye word i in it synoptics but actually it blinds you to the fact that they're different they're not the same Right. And they're not actually the same. And so the Olivet Discourse, it says, yes, Luke talks about events that occurred at the time of the disciples and the destruction of Jerusalem. But Matthew doesn't talk about that. He talks about the end of the age. That's why the Lord says, when you see the abomination of this legion, and I'll read you passages though, as we get to it that will clearly will clarify that easily. So you brought up the idea of the storm god and these names. The idea is that this is the same character. He wears different masks as he moves from civilization to civilization, age to age. There's always 12 in the pantheon, and it's like, which one is Satan? Where I'm saying the Lord deciphered it for us, he, he said it's Zeus. And that 
created this huge clarity. Now I knew that the storm god was the one that he was hiding behind. Hmm. And power of the air, I'll, I'll talk about that a little bit. That's another little revelation from the book I'm writing. But this guy comes in, that principality you know, the, that rules this, emp- this empire in the West continues to rule it, you see, even though he's been suppressed by the Holy Spirit. But God is going to allow him one more, one more go hmm. at it. And so by permission of God. So this um, Carl Human the, discovers this altar. He brings it to Berlin and he asks the Ottoman Caliphate uh, permission if, whether he can bring it all the way because it's Turkey, as you said, it's kind of under the Ottoman rule at that time at the end of the 19th century. So he, they say, yeah, you can take it with you. And then he, he puts it on a train, brings it to Berlin and it's in pieces. And usually when they brought this archaeology to Europe, they just would take a piece of it and put it in a museum and people would go and look at it and go, wow, and there'd be a little sign that explains it to you. But this group of people in Berlin that I haven't yet had a chance to look into, because I think they were occult people, they were into the occult, they form an organization that petitions the government to build an entire museum that can house the reconstructed altar. They're like, Mm. no, this has to be resurrected and reconstructed. And so they do. They they rebuild it and it's a museum island. It's the the Museum of Pergamum, it's called. And if you Google it, you know, the Museum of Berlin they call it now, I think, but it's the Museum of Pergamum. I think it looks like a temple. You look at that museum, it doesn't I mean the building itself looks very strange. And you know what else is in that museum next to the altar? The gates of Ishtar. Mm-hmm. Another one, the Queen of Heaven. That mm-hmm. was her name. Nana in Sumerian, Ishtar, Astarte in the Assyrians, Ishtar in the Babylonian, and she becomes a character in the Bible. The Lord chastises his people in the book of Jeremiah for worshiping the Queen of Heaven. And she continues to have a glorious, you know, career all the way into the age of the Holy Spirit as she's venerated and adored among the Catholic. And so she is still, you know, here, and I put her in the documentary because Fatima and all of these sightings, they are like silver discs appear, you know, the connection between the gods and yeah. angels, the UFOs. So she is the Babylonians. They had this wall around the city that was very famous for chariots could race on it and it had this double gates. It was called the gates of Ishtar. It's mm. huge. It's those very gates of Babylon are in that museum with the altar of Zeus. And the museum kind of looks like a temple and it's in the city of Berlin. <laughs> and so he puts it in there, and then Hitler comes to power, and he says to his architect Albert Speer that you know, and you know Albert Speer is charged with that creating this capital of Germany, make it look glorious, make it look like imperial. And we know that Hitler was demonic. We know that the whole Nazi thing, we know, was very demonic. The one thousand year Reich, the what's that woman um, who made a movie about Hitler, um, Levenstein, Louis. I have the movie actually on DVD, but it starts with Hitler in an airplane coming down to land because it's imitating the second coming of the Lord. And he's mm. going to stab 1,000 year right to compete with the 1,000 year rule of, of Christ. Mm-hmm. And so he says to Albert Speer, build me a glorious Berlin. And Albert Speer goes into this museum and he sees this altar of Zeus. And he says, you know what? I love this thing. It seizes him somehow. And so he decides that he's going to build a giant version of it for Hitler 
in Nuremberg. If you see that picture of this airplane that bombs this Nazi symbol, you often see that in documentaries and movies. Mm -hmm. That's the Nuremberg altar of Zeus. He builds a giant replica for Hitler. And Hitler says to him, you know what? I want it to be like a a cathedral, like a Catholic manse. So Albert Speer takes these army lights and every 12 meter, he puts these army lights and lights them up and look like now pillars of light. Why? Because the pagans, they worship outdoors. The Christians worshiped indoors. Mm. They took over the Roman Basilica, which was a community center, and they turned it into the first churches. But the pagans worshiped outdoors. If you go to the ten- to Jupiter's temples, they're all outdoor temples. And speaking of Jupiter temple, outdoor temples, this summer I got to go to Italy, and one of the places I went to see was Herculeum. So Pompeo and Herculeum, these are two important towns. Mount Vesuvius blows up this volcano. Now, these towns were very much halt centers of Jupiter. Inside of Pompeii, there's a giant open door, a temple to Jupiter. And Herculeum was dedicated to his son, to Zeus's son, Hercules. And so right in the middle of Herculeum, it's very much intact because the volcanic ash buried it and a hill fell on top of it. If you ever go there, go to Herculeum. It's, it's like you're walking in an ancient Roman town. It's incredible. It's all there. Like 90% of the town is there. I mean, there's even toilets and kitchens. It's incredible. Like it'll blow your mind. You think it's like something, you know, a Hollywood Universal Studios came down and created. Like a set. Yeah. 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 And there, you, you know, you see the Temple of, Her, uh, of Hercules. And, and so these guys worshipped outdoors. And I think the reason these towns were destroyed, I think it was part of they, there was an earthquake there. People that lived in those towns felt that this was very strange. It really scared them. It was, I think, a warning. So I think as the word of God started to go out from Jerusalem, he sent the Holy Spirit and he declared the world his. He began to destroy you know, these cult centers. And I think mm. that was a judgment that fell on those mm. very important centers of worship of Jupiter and Hercules as that or, you know, or earthquakes are the sign of judgment as that volcano blew up. And these guys, they're kind of were escaping. It comes pretty fast. And it's a very, very unique and special type of lava that doesn't turn you into dust, but actually, you know, they become like concrete yeah. right there. And you can go there, they're behind glass, their bodies, and, and you can see people like, like this, and you can see women huddling, holding their children. I think this was there left as a testimony for all the generations to yeah. go see. And I think it ties into the story of what happened in Jerusalem and Jupiter and the gods and the judgment and the spirit of God going to deliver the people from these things. I think that's what those towns are because they were cult centers. And so he takes this um, and he comes and I have seen video. I have actually a VHS tape of a documentary hey. about <laughs> You fire fire up that VCR. Let's go. Yeah, it's like the eighties, yeah. baby. We know that. And and there's all these Nazi soldiers in the ruins of the Temple of Zeus, worshiping Zeus. I tell you, it's it's right there. On the, they're saying sentences. There's fire and everything. They're worshiping Zeus. So he builds this altar of Pergamon. This and then he puts the the lights around it and lights it up, and it looks like crystal cathedral. 
They come in a cathedral of lights, Google Cathedral of Lights, Germany, and you'll see it. It's incredible. And they all come at night. And then, remember, the Lord said, I, when he spoke of the throne of Satan in Pergamum, he said, that's where Antipas, my faithful servant, lived. You know what they did to Antipas? He was the leader of the congregation of Pergamum. They arrested him. They, who arrested him? The priests of Zeus. And what was the crime that they charged him with? Monotheism. And they put him inside of the bull. Remember I said the bull, you know, that came and took uh, the princes right. and created Minos, and the symbols of Zeus? There was a bull in the altar, and that bull was a sacrificial instrument. It was a giant brazen bull. They put a guy in there, you know, and then they light a fire underneath, and it cooks you slowly. And there's a device put in its mouth so that as you cry out in pain, it brings the nostrils of the bull to life and your sacrifice. I mean, the whole thing is very sick that these guys were like, yeah. Jeez. And so apparently Antipas prayed to his last breath for his congregation as he was. And so the Lord lifts him up in this famous letter that he wrote himself. And he calls him my witness, my martyr. That's what the word witness is, a martyr. My martyr, and right, my faithful servant. So, so he gets his name, you know, in the book of books. And, and so he's, he, he, he takes that bull, where that bull was, Oblet Spear, removes the bull in the architecture of the altar, and he puts in its place a microphone where Hitler becomes the bull and mm. speaks. And as these guys gather, they're all drugged, these Nazi soldiers. He says that you, you, you don't see me and I don't see you, but you feel me and I feel you. And it is from that altar that he declares the Nuremberg Laws, which is the outline of the final solution of the Holocaust, a burnt offering, another sacrifice of, of the monotheists that compete with that spiritual force. As they come back to the land in order to fulfill the prophecies that lead the world to the second coming, and the establishment of a new age of history, the enemy says, I got to stop this. I got to break the word of God. I got to break the prophetic word. Because it says in the Old Testament that, oh, God does nothing except that which he speaks through his servants and prophets. Destroy them and prophecies broke. And so that becomes the mission. You know, kills them. Erase their name. You know, that's why do the nations conspire against God and against his anointed? And we see that like in Psalm 83. That's, you know, they says, let's conspire against his people. And let us erase the name of Israel. It says that right there in Psalm 83, the nations around it. Why? Mm. Because destroy this. So as this is coming forward, this, this rises, this force rises, this altar rises, this voice rises that says, no, let's burn them. Let's, mm. you know, let's destroy them. And he does through this pagan cathedral that he has built and this altar that's there. And you know who else gets inspired incidentally by this altar? Mm. You can Google it and see it. An American president, he goes to Berlin and he goes to the same museum that Albert Speer, the architect, he sees the altar and he gets inspired somehow as though it like haunts you or something. Be careful if you go to that museum. And he says, you know what? I want to actually have this. So he has one for his inauguration. Barack Obama, Google it the inauguration of Barack Obama, he has a replica built from there and he makes a speech. And so that's another president that falls under this. And, and he's not, he wasn't very kind to, 
to Israel. You know, he created the Obama doctrine where he's like, let's pull away from Israel and become more friends with the Islamic Republic mm -hmm. of Iran. That's the Obama doctrine. So, so that's another character. This is interesting that this thing keeps coming back, this throne, throughout mm. the ages. And every time it seems to target the people of God, it's to destroy temples, to, to make things obsolete. To, and so the Lord then tells us that there is going to be a final fulfillment. This is all going someplace. All the pieces of this puzzle, the Holy Land, the people, the uh, spiritual forces, the empires, uh, you know, the angels and their wars, the coming of the Lord and his armies, they're all going to come to it. So this time, once again, we're going to see that this man is going to come. And this is the son of perdition. And he is going to go into this temple. And the Lord says, when you see the abomination of desolation, and since Antiochus was from the house of Zeus, and he was of the same as this altar, you know, the spiritual force that's behind this altar, and the fact that the Romans came under Jupiter, and every time God sent a new light, God sent, he established, the second time he sent his Holy Spirit. The third time, when they gather against Jerusalem, I assume this is teaching us that the Antichrist will come from this power and principality, not from the Muslim world, mm -hmm. actually. Mm. Because that Muslim world is not part of this principality. Comes, you know, when you, you look at, for instance, you know, the power of the air. Well, this is something, this is a piece of my book that I'm going to reveal the power of the air. What is it that the Germans brought? What is it that Berlin brought that changed the world? You know, there was a secret place where they created super advanced tech. What was super advanced tech? Well, rockets, Rocketry, yeah. aeroplanes, jets, bombers, stealth bombers. I mean, the stuff you, mm. you know, I've seen the documentary suit. It's incredible. It's mind-boggling. The power of the air. Mm. That's Eagles how that's what the West, that's what from Moscow to DC separates it from the empires of the Middle East. It's the power. Not the sea, not the earth, air. Who is building the rocket ships? Well, you know, it was the rocket ships didn't start in Indonesia or Saudi Arabia or Egypt, right? They started in this place. This is the air, the control of the air. You know, so it's um the because we know that the second heaven is the universe, the third heaven is where the temple of the Lord is. So when you're sending a rocket, you're not sending it into space or into universe. You're sending it into the second heaven. This is a war of angels. We're in the heavens mm -hmm. on the earth. They're preparing, you know, the technology is being prepared ultimately. So when these guys, you know, surround Jerusalem, what is the answer of the Lord? Mm -hmm. What is the third light that he sends to the earth? His mm -hmm. son mm -hmm. and the armies of heaven. That is the response of the Lord. So there are three attacks from this principality. The first one, the days of Antioch, Antiochus Epiphanes, and that rededication of the temple and the continuation of the work of God. Life is re reignited, and to this day it's remembered as the festival of light, the symbol of God's light. The second time, it attacks on the ninth of Av and destroys the temple, and the same that the Babylonians did, God sends this Holy Spirit and changes the world and changes that principality and powers realm. The third time they attack under the power of the same Jupiter, under this from the same place where the where you know the altar is, this this part of the world, with the same, you know, a leader who is to see and receives, you know, I have a you can Google this, 
If you like the Scepter, I have a show called The Scepter of Enlil, where I do the story of the passing down of the Scepter all the way to where it says in the book of Revelation that the dragon gave you know, power to the beast. He is the one that mm. gives his power and authority to the beast. It says that in the book of Revelation. So when that happens and these guys attack, one last time, the city of Jerusalem, go to Zechariah chapter 14, because this is a very important chapter. It dispels the whole idea of, oh, what did it, is it really going to happen again or not? Um, it describes in such great detail things that have never happened. It says here, Behold, a day of the Lord is coming when your plunder will be divided in your midst. I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to wage war. I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem. So God is going to remove something evil from the earth by judging it and freeing everybody from it. But this is how, this is the process of it. It comes to the surface and it gets judged. The city shall be captured the house is ransacked and the woman ravished. Now, this is something that recently happened in Israel. Houses were ransacked, women were raped. Mm -hmm. Half the city will be exiled, but the remainder of the people will not be cut off from the city. And that's interesting because Jerusalem is divided into east and west, and East Jerusalem is where the Muslim population, the Arab population lives, and it's very contentious in East Jerusalem. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fought in the day of battle, in that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which lies to the east of Jerusalem. And it's interesting because the Mount of Olives is where he ascended in mm. the book of So he ascends in the Mount of from the Mount of Olives, and that's and then he descends there. You know, he comes back there. So now if you go the first time I went, I've been to Jerusalem twice. And the first time I went there, uh, when we got to Jerusalem, I was in this hotel, it was a little bit away from the city center and had a large deck. And I'd go there every day and I'd look out of the city and I could see the dome of the rock so close so you could touch it. And I would see this mountain. It was only the last night that I was there that I realized once I started to know my way around that that was the Mount of Olives that I was looking at all oh, this wow. time. That's, you know, yeah. So I called the Mount of Dissension in my head. People called the Mount of Ascension. I called the Mount of Dissension because that's where he's going to come back. Mm. And then it goes on and creates an earthquake and all that stuff. Then there is a plague with which the Lord will strike all the people that wage war against Jerusalem. Well, it talks about a massive earthquake, by the way, huge earthquake that I don't want to get into, but it, but it, you read it. Has this ever happened before? No. Now, this is the plague with which the Lord will strike all the people that wage war against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they are standing on their feet. Their eyes will rot in their sockets and their tongues will rot in their mouths. Is this a nuclear blast? Is there technology in this work? It will happen in that day that a great panic from, I don't mean nuclear, quote-unquote, right? I mean, something right. that uses God's creation. Uh, it will happen in that day that great panic from the Lord will be among them. And then it says, then all the survivors from all the nations that attack Jerusalem will go from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. So, let me repeat that. All the survivors from all the nations that attack Jerusalem will go year after year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, on the Feast of Tabernacle, mm. the Feast of Sukkot. And it's interesting because it was the, the eighth day of this feast, which is the most solemn of the days, is the day that Hamas attacked Israel on October 7th. It was on Sukkot. Hmm. 
Hmm. On if day, precisely. And it's interesting because it, this prophecy also happens around that time and it talks about uh, ransacks and rapes and, and, and contention. It was on this day. So there's a pattern again as we're talking about the cycles and patterns. If any of the nations on earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and the word in Hebrew, Adonai Tzvaut, is, the, is heaven's armies, literally translated, the Lord of heaven's armies. If anyone of the nations doesn't go to worship on the day of tabernacle, they'll have no rain, which is a sign of blessing. If the Egyptians do not go and celebrate, they will have no rain, and etc. So the, instead, they, there will be the plague that the Lord will inflict on the nations that do not go up to celebrate Sukkot or tabernacle. This is the beginning of the kingdom. You know, it's the last of the appointed days of God. Passover in the spring is the first, and that's when the story of Israel began in, in Exodus. And it ends on the Feast of Tabernacle with the establishment of the Messianic kingdom. So history itself follows the pattern of the appointed days from spring to the fall. History itself is moving forward like a spiral as somehow these appointed days are, you know, carrying out the message and marking in God's prophetic calendar important days when the Messiah, for instance, was crucified was Passover. He was in the tomb during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. He came back on the Feast of First Fruits, three of the appointed days of God. Then the Holy Spirit descended on Pentecost, another one of God's appointed days. So this appointed day is the last in the cycle and marks the beginning of the Messianic Kingdom. So the history of Israel literally goes from Exodus 3,000 years ago, Passover, Exodus begins the history of Israel and, and it ends in the promised land in our future at some time on the Feast of Tabernacle, the last of the appointed days. The history of Israel yeah. is hmm. moving forward according to the cycle of these feasts. And so this particular event where they gather, the nations gather against Jerusalem, where this man goes in the temple that will be built there, I assume, and declares himself above God. all that is. He sells himself God, yeah. yeah. And this is, and, and you know, some people say, is it literal? Like, is it like maybe that we are now the temple, the mm. church? And so it's a spiritual thing, like, like the false Christianity. Well, for me, the way that it works is that since Israel has returned to a land and the land has come back to life, what has happened is that um, the church has gone forward exponentially in revelation. We have come to life as well, mm. like the land. We have suddenly come to know about all of these things that people before us didn't know. And this is the last passage I'm going to read. It's from Romans chapter 11. So it's yeah, 11.15. It says here, for the for if their rejection leads to the reconciliation of the world, the Lord blinded the Jewish people in part, as Paul says, so that the Gentiles would receive the Messiah and enter the kingdom, and then they would come back and join everybody. For if their rejection leads to the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? Paul says. So the, the when there'll be even a greater blessing to us as they spiritually come back like the valley of dry bones first you have the bones mm. then you have, then you have the breath so you have you have the bones they're in place i was watching this documentary these orthodox women taught in judea and samaria which is called the west bank they were building these towns and they said you know it feels so right to be here even though it's very contentious politically and then suddenly she said you know it's like the valley of dried bones it's as though the bones are being clicked together 
which is these towns. And then, you know, the breath of God will come over us. Like she said that, you know, she, so they're thinking these things as they're living yeah. out this, right? So the whole idea, there's always been war. You know, the first time the Jewish people came there, there was a people there. They fought against the giants. They destroyed yeah. the city, right? And so the, uh, that was the first time they came. The second time they came there was very contentious. All these enemies were stopping them from building the temple and reestablishing the city because the enemy is always trying to push things down. So the yeah. work of God doesn't go forward, right? So this time again, you have the house of the crescent of the moon. There is the prince of Persia, I believe, that's rising right now with Iran. There is this entity from the West coming, which is going to have the son of perdition. When this one comes and attacks and forms this war that Zechariah 14 is talking about, where all the nations gather against Jerusalem, that is when the father will send his son. And this will be the third response to this power and principalities outrageous attack against you know the will of god the first mm. time god sent the light the second time he sent the holy spirit and the third time he will send the greatest of all the lights he will send his son and the armies of heaven to establish a new kingdom and a new age and to bring about what Zechariah 14 says and all the nations will come and worship the son of god on the feast of tabernacle you know we are told that if you believe in him now you will be resurrected if you're dead. You know, when Paul says that the, when they, the Jewish people come full faith and understand this, there'll be life from the dead for the Gentiles. Maybe it corresponds to the moment of the rapture, maybe. That maybe literally life from the dead, that they come back to life, and that corresponds to the moment where the fullness of Israel comes in. Who knows? But mm -hmm. we'll have to see it. But this is going to be something great. Maybe it's literal, I'm saying. So when it happens, if you believe in the Lord now, you get a place in that government kingdom as a royal priest. And I think that if earth is the incubation chamber of the immortal children of God, with whom God wants to have an intimate love relationship as his children and groom them and teach them to become his image bearers and bring his teachings to the creation, but through a love relationship, then at this moment, when you receive the Lord and you receive the Holy Spirit, you are born mm -hmm. again. You're rejuvenated. Right? You're a baby. Mm -hmm. As you drink the milk of the scripture, you have your relationship with God, you start to grow. But when the Lord comes and you get your new body, because we're promised a new body, like the one he had when he came back from the dead, we are of the world of God and angel, and we have this cosmic destiny. Then I think you enter your teenage years, and now you serve in this kingdom. And you govern the world, much of the world that doesn't know the Lord, passes through into the kingdom and lives and dies and is governed, you know, by those mm. who, who who have the life. And this is what that's why they have to come every year, year after year, apparently for a thousand years. And if you look into the book of Genesis, no one makes it to a thousand. Even Methuselah lived, dies in his nine hundreds. And where thousand years is but a day to the Lord. So it seems that in the cosmic calendar, whatever planetary rotation the Temple of Heaven uses to count time, a thousand years is a day. So no one lives one celestial day after the fall of Adam. But in this kingdom, we will live one celestial day. We will, it says we are healed. It's the Sabbath of history. Hmm. And then we enter into the heavenly Jerusalem where we become adults. We go from our births to our spiritual births to our teenage years to our adult years. 
And that's when the whole thing comes. So there, but once again, we're told in the Revelation that the enemy will rise, will be given the permission to rise yet once again at the end of that kingdom. And the father comes and destroys him with fire. And it's maybe a purifying. Maybe the Lord even redeems him. I don't know. But it follows the same pattern that once again, there's an attack and God sends yet even a greater light. Mm. So every time in your life, you may feel the adversary coming at you. Rest assured, that it will be as you persevere, mm. it will be followed by a greater revelation, a greater mm. light, and a greater demonstration of the might and power of God. This is the pattern God has shown us in history vis-a-vis wow. this power and palate and his relationship with Jerusalem, uh, going back to his throne, to this uh, uh, abomination of desolation. And I think it also applies to our personal lives. That's how I've experienced it often myself. Uh, so this is the story of the throne of, throne of Satan, and its manifestation throughout the ages. And really, the Bible is very much the tale of two, two thrones, you know? Yes, two kingdoms. Yeah. Kingdom. You know, two bloodlines. David's son and yeah. the bloodlines of the, the enemy and his attempt to create empires, give it, and to attack and destroy the things of God and the responses of God. And you know what's interesting? When you see the God says that he will curse those who curse his people and bless those who bless them, the Abrahamic covenant, he puts a, protection around them because they need it as they go through the story. The word there for curse is different from the word curse anywhere in the Bible. It's a very long Hebrew word that I don't have in my mind, but it has in it embedded the word or, which means light. So the curse of God against the enemies of God is an enlightening curse. That's why it says those who come to, uh, Mm. all the survivors who come against Jerusalem, what do the survivors of those who come against Jerusalem do? They go to worship the king. Mm-hmm. After. So they get enlightened, and so there's an in, even today as we see these religious armies. I mean, right now the war in the Middle East is a very religious war that's happening, very different from the wars of the 20th century. If there is really an Islamic force gathering against Israel, and if they do somehow collect, connect completely all of them, put all their differences away, and connect and and come mm. to attack Israel and lose. They will be enlightened because they're not crazy. They're just deceived. They will realize all this time God was with Israel. That's how their religious mind will understand their own defeat. So, so they might actually let go of those beliefs and, and the stronghold of this, you know, principality may weaken over them and they may turn to the God of gods and to the worship of the Lord. So it might be a healing thing and it may remove a great evil. We shouldn't always be afraid. I think we have very cushy lives here, but yeah. the Lord. There's a time for peace and a time for war, and he created calamities mm. as well. So Man. these things are part of life. Thanks, Ali. Ali. <laughs> I mean, we we traversed uh, thousands of years of history today, and, and, and I think it's a very <laughs> I think it's such an important way to look at scripture, and also just to look at the empires and, and look back at history because it's always you know it's always easier to look back and, and see what's happened much more than we can look ahead. I mean, though we have, you know, God has given us the keys to look ahead, but I, I think it's just it's fascinating to look at at the strategy of the enemy because it isn't nothing's new under the sun as solomon said right so the it's a new mask and it's the same strategy and it will continue to be the same strategy and there's such a hope in in the finality of it all which i think is what we can hold on to as christians is that you know we do live a cushy life and it may not be that way for for our our lives as as, you know as, as they are for the you know we don't know but i i do think that we can always rest in the fact that god is eternally faithful and he's written the end 
and and even the uh, even the demons yeah. and the darkness know that it's coming, right? We talk about the we talk about the demoniac at the tombs oftentimes, and the point of time, and the demons, you know, saying it's not our not the time, right? Not the point of time, right? And and Jesus is like, it's not, but yeah, still gonna, you're still going to go in these pig bodies, you know, because I'm in charge. Yeah, but no, yeah. I, I I love it, brother. It's always amazing to sit and listen. I mean, everything from your testimony and yeah. and you know the discussion of, of UFOs to to unwrapping the you know, the, the throne of, of Zeus and throne of Satan at Pergamum. You're grateful and grateful for your friendship and for what you do, what you've done for the show and excited to do, you know, a, a part three. I know we've talked about that at some point, so we'll tease that now, but as always, we want to let people give you a chance to let people know, you know, things you're working on, where they can interact with you, where they can find the, the doc, you know, no longer on, uh, on uh, Napster or LimeWire because those are now gone. And our Google Video, I think, is gone as well. <laughs> yeah. That's but, right. You want yeah. to pull my website, thinkagainproductions.com, thinkagainproductions.com. You can watch the documentary of Foes, Angels, and Gods there. If you want to leave a donation, scroll to the bottom, click on the donation button. Mm-hmm. I appreciate that. It's free. If you don't on the documentary, it'll take you to my YouTube page. There are other videos there. You can subscribe. And... I'm trying to build my Twitter account right now. You know, act, that's what it's called these days. Yeah, at the bottom of the homepage, you'll see uh, my tweets appear. If you click on that, it'll take you to my Twitter. And it's my handle is at UFOs Angels Gods. And that's also my handle on Facebook. Often people follow me on my personal Facebook page. I don't put too much there, but it's at UFOs Angels Gods. So if you want to follow me on Twitter and on Facebook, that's the handle. Please do. And... Right at the bottom of, again, the homepage, it says stay informed. Mm. Put your name there because I'm writing these books and making audio and video things. And I will then send out emails announcing it to people. And you want to receive that. Mm. Um, There is lots of revelation coming from the Lord to this generation. And the Bible has a building block. There's a way that the knowledge that's in the Bible clicks together. And, you know, you want to kind of uh, be informed about what that building block is. As we go into the age of deception, if this is going to be the age of Antiochus Epiphanes, then darkness fills the land, right? They get confused. Mm. And so the light of God has to shine all the brighter as we go back into paganism and as we have all these machineries of deception, whether it's social media, the news cycle, no one really knows what's true anymore. AI coming, you know, you can make things that look real. And so you don't really know. So the only the word of God is going to be even more precious than ever before. So to really have that rooting and then grounding the word of God and understand what it says, uh, so that you can you know live through this. I think God will prosper His people and bless His people and guide His people Mm. throughout this. I don't not scared in that sense. I don't have doom and gloom perspective of it. I feel empowered and led by the Mm. Lord through it all. So join me on this journey. And we'll learn together. And thanks, Ali. Share. And you'll well, be. Able- yeah, you're thanks. Man. We're excited to see your man. meme game too. We'll check out see what kind of see what kind of memes you're dropping on Twitter. <laughs> we'll have yeah. to uh, we'll have to take a look. We have to practice that. Yeah, it's, you know what? You're you're hey, you're in the ring with a champ right now, Nate, Doctor Meme, the yeah. old Nate Henry. He's pretty. Easy. I try. And I have to take some notes. <laughs> yeah, you might. Yeah, you might. You might know a guy. So yeah, yeah. yeah. Thanks, Ali. Well, appreciate it, brother. Um, We'll, uh, we'll we'll be in contact yeah. and and uh, we'll let you we'll let you know when this is coming out and we'll we'll, we'll give you an, we'll give you a heads up and then we'll awesome. uh, just yeah as we said before like stay in, stay in touch and let us know what, what's what's going on and we'll uh, we'll connect on that yeah yep thanks Thank brother you. yeah great to see you man good to see you too all right bye.